Father, we do pray that you would give us the Holy Spirit to guide us into all the truth, to make clear not only the meaning but the application of your word. That, Father, that there would be no dichotomy, no separation for us between theology and practice. That what we hear of your word, we will do, and we will come under your word, receiving it as from your very mouth yourself, inspired by you and useful to correct us, to change our course, to change our path, our thinking, to train us in all ways of righteousness. And so, Father, we look to you now to give us the Spirit, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We are looking at a study on the Psalms of Ascents, 15 Psalms that come from Psalm 120 to 134. I appreciate uh, Carl's leading us in terms of uh, singing the Psalms this morning. So, if you're able, remain standing as we hear the Word of God from Psalm. Sorry if I didn't lead you well on that. Sorry for the confusion. But we'll, before the sermon, we try to stand for the Word of God. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and He answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Now you may be seated. I led you better that. See, out of practice, two weeks away, all I've been is in my shorts and flip-flops, enjoying baseball and uh, nice time with my family. What we're beginning to do, and we're going to do for a few weeks as we move, kind of conclude in the summer and move into the fall, is begin a study of what is known. I always like in the summertime uh, to take some time and to, I, I kind of think it in my mind, summer in the Psalms. And especially it's better than saying, okay, we're going to take the next three years and go Psalm 1 all the way through Psalm 150. So I always like to take some groupings or whatnot. And Psalms 120 to 134, if you ever look in your Bible, they've got the title. And the titles, remember, are they'll give us some of the historical information. They're not inspired. The titles are not the inspired Word of God, but they help us. They give us what I call interpretive clues in terms of how to understand. And Psalms 120 to 134 are called the Songs of Ascents, or the Psalms of Ascents. And just to introduce them, and we probably won't cover all 15 of them, that gives me time for next summer to cover a few more, but for the next few weeks we'll work our way through some of these. And there are many theories, if you look through, as I kind of began to study, and began to look at these particular psalms, in the history of the church, there have been many theories of interpretation, none of which we can say for sure, but we can have what I think in the history of theology we can call educated guesswork, uh, and have a good idea what they were all about. So in terms of the meaning of these psalms, so for example, to go way back in the history of the church, St. Augustine referred to them, he said this was the spiritual ascent of the believer. That these are the songs of the ascent and we're ascending to God. We're going up. The word ascent means to go up. We're going up to God. Calvin, for instance, he looked at it and he kind of looked at the same thing as they're going up, but he took it in terms of the worship of the church. 
since the entirety of the Psalms are the hymn book, the prayer book, the liturgy, the worship of the Old Testament Christian. And Calvin looked at it more in a musical light, and he felt it was music and to the rising, to the going up of the musical pitch. He kind of took the crescendo of the journey and looked at it from a musical standpoint. We're on our way to Zion. We're on our way to the temple. We're on our way to the service of the Lord. Modern commentators kind of take a bit from the ancient church, a bit from the Reformation church, and so for instance, and they kind of put it together, and I think that's good as history grows and we learn in the history of, rep, uh, of interpretation. My Old Testament professor, Tremper Longman, he put it this way in his commentary. He says, these songs, so here's the musical, so that's Calvin, were sung while pilgrims made the journey to Jerusalem from outlying areas in order to worship at the temple there, particularly during one of the great annual festivals, the feasts. For example, the Feast of Tabernacles. Of course, the trip to the temple on Zion in Jerusalem would involve not only a physical journey, but also putting together what the likes of Augustine and Calvin had to say, a spiritual one. Since Jerusalem, and listen, this is very important, since Jerusalem was the place where heaven met earth. The meaning of Jerusalem was that it was the meeting place. It was where you would go to find and experience the very presence of God. Now the Hebrew word for ascent literally means going up. So these psalms were for pilgrims on their wilderness journey, coming from outlying areas, going up to God's presence, going up to God's sanctuary for one of the great festivals. So for example, if you go back to the book of Ezra and Ezra chapter 9, we read that on the first day of the first month, Ezra began to go up. Same word, same Hebrew word, began to ascend. Listen to the language. From Babylonia... And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. And so there are some commentators that even go so far to conjecture, and again, we can't prove this, but it's kind of an interesting, educated guesswork, that possibly with the background of a great festival, that the Feast of Tabernacles in 445 B.C., that was presided over because at this point Zerubbabel had come back from exile with a bunch of exiles, Ezra had come back, and then finally Nehemiah. And so here's Ezra and Nehemiah presiding over the Feast of Tabernacles, and this could provide a sense of unity, a sense of bind us together as we corporately come together to gather in the worship of the Lord and sing these songs of going up, these psalms of ascent. So if these psalms, these songs of ascent, were songs used by pilgrims on their way up to the temple at Jerusalem for the feasts, perhaps the Feast of Tabernacles, the psalm that we're looking at today, Psalm 120, though intensely personal, also fits a pilgrim context, voicing the homesickness, the longing, the ache of those who are always living as strangers among enemies. Just listen to the tone, the lament, the cry, the complaint of the psalmist's heart. I called to the Lord in my distress, 
and you answered me. I trusted in your faithfulness. And even how the psalm ends, it doesn't end. Great is thy faithfulness. You fixed my life. Everything is better. These people of Meshach and Kedar, thank you, God, you got them. My life is now wonderful. As a matter of fact, the tone of the psalm ends in pretty dire straits where he pronounces a curse on himself, a woe oracle, woe to me for I still dwell here, but I trust you. On a very practical level, this particular psalm, see, we're pilgrims. We have been redeemed and brought out. See, we've experienced the exodus, if you would. We've been redeemed and brought up from the house of slavery, the house of sin and bondage, and God has deposited us in the wilderness where, guess what? Relationships still struggle. We still have a stack of bills at home. You might be seeing a doctor this week with an uncertain medical test. Not every relationship, not every marriage is perfect. No offense, We still face uncertainty in our life. And this psalm begs to ask us the question on a very practical level. How do we live in the world? How do we live as a faithful presence, as salt and light? That's what we've been called to when we feel like we don't fit in the world. Anybody feel like you don't fit in the world anymore? You watch the news and you go, wait a second, what's up with this? You look around you. You read the headlines, and you kind of go. Uh, I remember when my father first came to Christ, and it was such an exciting time for us as a family. But he started reading the Bible and started experience. And he used to say to us at the dinner table, "What planet do I live on?" Such was he was kind of expressing his heart in a very real, raw, authentic way, basically saying, "I don't feel like I fit in the world." Anybody feel like they have that question? Well, welcome to Psalm one twenty. Because the psalmist here, we don't know his name, we don't know who he is, but it's written, yes, intensely personal, but it's written for the congregation, written for pilgrims. That's us. Peter says we're aliens and strangers in the world. We are exiles on our way to the promised land. How do you live in the world that you don't fit in? Do you compromise? Do you just kind of say, I'll make myself as comfortable as possible, I'll try to get along with everybody and just kind of fit? Whether that means I have to give up some of my biblical standards and maybe not Know God as well, as deeply, as passionately as I might? Is that the way you do it? Do you kind of just put God on the back burner? Or do you do what this psalmist did? And he did two things. He cried, the pilgrim's cry of distress, and he experienced the pilgrim's longing for peace. So the pilgrim's cry and the pilgrim's longing as a way. And, and you thought I was going to preach an uplifting sermon, didn't you, when I came back? You thought, Jeff, aren't you in a better mood coming home from vacation? The pilgrims cry. Look with me at the opening verses, verses 1 through 4 of the psalm. And he begins, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Okay, the journey of the pilgrim begins, and the psalmist discloses his condition immediately. In my distress. We don't know what the distress is being caused. We have an idea, though, because he says, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips. In other words, there are people who are creating their own narrative, 
who are slandering him, who are opposing him with their tongue, who are hostile to him. And so they're deceiving, they're slandering, they're lying to him. And so he says, Lord, in my distress, I, distress, I call out to you, and you answered me. Now, we all know what a journey is like, don't we? Evie and I took a journey these past two weeks. We just finished vacation. We journeyed. We spent great time. It was, it was low-key. It was relaxing, but it was a journey. We went to St. Augustine, spent a few days with my mom and dad. Wonderful time. Then went to Myrtle Beach, spent another few days with Evie's mom, caught up, found out what's going on, saw her brother, saw her aunt, saw different people. Then we, we kept going north. We went to Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. I had never been to Rocky Mountain, North Carolina before, so this was my first time going to... I, I don't know that it was on my bucket list, but it was a nice place. But we have dear friends who live there, spent some time with there. Our journey took quite a bit of preparation because, yes, we took our dogs. Calvin and Hobbes came with us on the journey. So there's a lot of packing, you know, a lot of preparation that goes in. And we proceeded. And there's joy. You start a journey and there's excitement. And after a while, what does it happen? You're still having a good time, but it kind of wanes a little bit. You ever notice that? You kind of grow impatient. You're kind of fatigued. And even though after two weeks away, what do you start doing? I kind of go, mm, I miss my sofa. I miss my TV. My remote knows exactly where ESPN is to be found. I miss my bed. You're ready. You sense a sense. You're still having a great time. If my family or friends listen to this on the internet, we had an awesome time. It was wonderful. But there's, there's a sense of, of homesickness, of longing, an ache, a longing for home. And the psalmist is experiencing all of this. But his situation is even worse. He's in distress. We're not told the exact nature of the distress, but it's pretty bad when he pronounces a woe on himself. When was the last time you said to yourself, woe to me, I live in Florida? I hope you haven't said that recently. But that's what he's saying. Woe to me means I wish I were dead. He doesn't like Meshach or Kedar, and especially the people there. He's not real fond of them. And the psalmist, what does he do when he says, I'm out for peace, but when I speak, they're out for war. He's saying, I want the word peace. There is the word shalom, which means well-being, contentment, wholeness, a soundness. He is saying, I am for flourishing. In other words, he's admitting that's what he is built for. That's what he is created for. Friends, you weren't created for just people to be somewhat nice to you. You were built for so much more. You were built for shalom. You were created for that sense of soundness and wholeness and well-being. And he's not experiencing it. And let me tell you something, either are you. Even if your life is going very well right now, you are not experiencing what you were built for. So what does he do? He calls out to the Lord. The right thing. He takes his emotions, he takes his condition, he takes his situation, and he processes them, his experience before the Lord. And he trusts the Lord's faithfulness. Notice the tense of verse 1. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. That's past tense. He answered me. The specifics of his prayer are given in verse 2 when he says, 
Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. So now put this together. His specific prayer request is, Lord, I pray for deliverance from these people of Meshach and Kedar, these deceitful tongues, these lying lips, these people who are creating their own worldview, their own narrative, they're slandering me. Free me from them. Deliver me from this bondage. Deliver me from this. And he's basically so confident in the Lord that he says, I called out to the Lord and he answered me. Yet how does the psalm end? Did he answer him? He says, I still live in Meshach and Kedar. Woe to me, it lived there. I'm for peace, they're for war. Apparently the Lord didn't deliver him. Or did he? Maybe he didn't deliver him in the way he wanted, but it begs a certain question. And it's a question we're going to be asking as we go through these songs of ascents, which is in a sense a study of our own prayer life. When we pray a prayer, are we praying looking simply for the answer or are we praying? So do we want to get things from God or do we want to get God? I called out to the Lord and he answered me. It doesn't look like he delivered me and yet I'm so confident in the Lord's faithfulness. Why? Because he gets God. When he prays, he gets God. See, I want you to think about it. What could have the psalmist done? He's a pilgrim. He's journeying. What do we typically do? See, think about this. What do we typically do when we are in trouble? Do we take matters into our own hands? Do we try to fix things, either in our own lives or in the lives of those we love? Do we try to figure it out for ourselves? in a kind of a spirit of self-reliance, refusing to live in the mystery. Demanding an answer. See, think about this. What are we doing when we rant and rave in anger? Or what what are we doing when we rant and rave, maybe not expressing our anger, but living in anger, sulking alone in the corner? In either way, what we're doing is saying, God, I'm not satisfied with you. I'm going to deal with it myself. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. See, let me ask you a question. What do you do when God doesn't make sense to you? The psalmist here says, in my distress, I called out to you, and he answered me. That's a pretty... um, How do I word this? He's expressing a great deal of confidence there. He answered me, even though my circumstances haven't changed. My life hasn't gotten any better. He answered me. I picked up a book while on vacation. Actually, I picked it up just before vacation, started reading it. Uh, Whenever Larry Crabb writes a new book, I pick it up. Steve Brown, who's PCA pastor, Key Life Network, on the radio. I love his little blurb in it. He says, uh, whenever Larry Crabb writes a book, it touches my life profoundly, and this one has done so on steroids. And this book is called, When God Makes No Sense. I saw that title, and I ordered two. I said, Evie, we need this. Amazon Prime, my faithful friend, had it within two days. I started reading it, and like all of Larry Crabb's writings, because what Larry Crabb does is he writes, like Just like Dr. Brown said, it touches my personal life. It's challenging, and it challenges me in the right way. It challenges my heart. It's unnerving because of the things he brings up and brings out. It doesn't just give pat, cliched answers. It exposes 
my heart and my life and my idols in such a way that it deeply, deeply moves me. Now, here's just one sampling. And this, I haven't even gotten very far. I'm still in the introduction of the book. This is the kind of book you read very slowly and you go, did he really say that? I've got to ponder that. This is out of the foreword. The foreword was written by somebody else commenting on the book. It says, this book is about what you and I do with God in the midst of our brokenness. When God doesn't make sense, how should we view him? How should we approach him? There are a number of opinions before us. We can turn on spiritual autopilot, coast a while, and effectively place God on the back burner. Many well-meaning people do this today. Another option is that we can alter our view of God to better fit our messed up lives. We can try to force fit God into a paradigm that will help us make sense of our pain. And that's, the book goes through three examples of basically people who, people in the Bible, Bible characters who did that. Jonah, who resisted and ran away from God when God didn't make sense to him. Saul, before before he became the Apostle Paul, who distorted and denied the truth of God to make God fit into his paradigm. And then finally, Habakkuk, who, what he says, trembled in humility and trusted. Friends, that's the message of this psalm. The message of this psalm is that the psalmist says he cries out to God, out of his brokenness, in my distress. See, a lot of us, what do we do? Like what Dr. Crabb is saying, we put God on the back burner. Why? Because we don't want to feel our brokenness. Brokenness is painful. Pilgrimage is painful. We are ascending up to God. That's why we need each other. That's why we need the Word. That's why we need to feast at the house of Zion on the supper to strengthen us because you have not arrived in the promised land yet. It is a painful and difficult journey, but God has given us himself and one another. But we put God on the back burner, settling for mediocrity because the brokenness is difficult. So here is the psalmist, again, quoting Dr. Crabb's book again. He says, we must learn to apply soul-quaking humility with heart-abandoning faith if we are ever going to experience God as we long to. So the psalmist seeking the Lord, confident that the Lord will answer him. What is he doing? He is seeking God says, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. And then look at what he does in verse 3. In verse 3, putting his faith and trust into action in prayer. His enemies are busy slandering him. His prayer for deliverance from their lying lips and deceitful tongue. Now, basically, what he does is he speaks to them. He's confident in the Lord, and he's mocking. Verse 3 is a mock of his enemies. He says, what shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Tremper Longman says of these verses, he says mockingly in verses 3 and 4, he's asking the liars to consider the fate that God has in store for them. He then tells them in no uncertain terms that God will punish them for their slanders and lies. And the punishment will come in the form of these two things, the warrior's sharp arrows. The warrior being God, the divine warrior, who with his arrows of truth and burning coals, coals that are used in the scripture as a symbol of judgment, 
the coals of the broom tree. And the broom tree that was used, you could ex extract the roots of the broom tree in the Old Testament and burn it for charcoal. So for example, as Psalm 140 says, as for the head of those who surround me, let the mischief of their lips overwhelm them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into fire, into miry pits no more to rise. Now, of course, before we get too excited and say, that's what I'm talking about. Let my enemies have that. I'm calling down those burning coals on them. I got my enemy. I got a list. There they are. I love this prayer. Now, see, look, some of you are perking up. You're like, sermon just got good. Before you were telling me brokenness, I didn't care for that. Jeff, what, what were you doing on vacation? Now it just got good. You told me, get them. No, I didn't, because look at how the New Testament tells us. Tim Keller t calls this passage in Romans chapter 12, New Testament Holy War. He says, if possible, this is Romans 12, 18 to 20, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord will fulfill the burning coals. But look how he goes about doing it. He says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. By being the instrument of mercy. And that doesn't mean continuing to take abuse. That might mean you put a distance, you put a boundary there. But it might be by your kindness and prayers, your refusal to repay, your refusal to enact vengeance, your refusal to get even, you're enacting New Testament holy war. The same thing the psalmist mockingly addresses to his slanders. You're doing in your kindness and mercy. The psalmist's cry of distress. The pilgrim's longing for home, the pilgrim's longing for peace. Look with me at verses 5 through 7, our next point. It says, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. I called out to the Lord, he answered me, but I still dwell here. In these lousy places. I still, still dwell with these lousy places, in these lousy places, with these lousy people. Does God make sense when you do all the right things? When you call on Him, you're filled with faith, your confidence is in the Lord, you're moving toward Him, and your circumstances don't get any better? The psalmist is lamenting his wretched condition. Sometimes, friends, we need to face it. Life doesn't get any better. We're not healed. Our marriages don't get better. The bills still keep coming. The prodigal child does not always return home. We are broken people living in a broken world. Isaiah said, and this is why we used it in the service, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And friends, see, this is the point. When we pray, when we call out to God, do we call out to God to get things from God or do we call out to God to get God? Because look, while ancient readers would certainly know the exact context and the exact setting for this psalm, 
we can still discern its application for us as New Testament Christians to our lives. See, we say, help, I'm in trouble. But ask yourself the question, is God enough? See, one commentator puts it, the psalmist longs to be at home in a place of familiarity and safety. And for the psalmist, home would be near the place where God makes his presence most palpably real on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. These songs of ascent are the pilgrim's cry for home, ascending towards home. And friends, that's our heart's cry. That's our heart's need. We need to be home in a place of refuge, in a place of security, in a place of safety. Where is that place of safety for us as New Testament followers of God? For us as New Testament Christians, Jesus Christ is the very presence of God. Jesus Christ is the temple. Jesus Christ is Mount Zion. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. And I want you to think about the gospel in our brokenness for a second. John says in his gospel, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, the word, fully God and fully man in one person, became flesh. Now, I want you to think about this. The psalmist, the pilgrim, says, I hate dwelling there. Lord, deliver me from this place. I don't want to be there. I want to leave. Get me out. He does what many of us want to do, escape. When you don't like something, flee. What did Jesus do? Did he say, I don't like dwelling? He says, he became flesh and he dwelt. Do you think we're a comfortable place for him? Do you think he fits in this world, the sinless, righteous, perfect one? Does he fit in a world of violence and corruption and injustice and hatred and hostility? Does he fit in a world where even the church that he prayed would be one family, bound together, in commonality, in koinonia fellowship? We shoot each other in the foot. We're always against one another. Does he fit? Now, what did he do? Did he say, Father, I'm tired of living in the, you know... Get me away from the tents of Kedar and Meshach. No. What did he do? He became flesh. He implanted himself as a temple right in the middle of us. He entered in and he tabernacled. He came into our neighborhood. He came into our hearts. And by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling with us, he lives in the midst of us. The word became flesh. And he inserted, that means he inserted himself right, he didn't even come above our situation to fix it. He came in the middle of our situation and inserted to us. This is what we're going to be feasting on in the Lord's Supper. This is the meaning of this is my body given for you. Yes, his body is locally, physically in heaven. But we are feasting in the power and in the realm of the Holy Spirit, truly upon the flesh of Jesus Christ. His presence is with us, and we celebrate it. And friends, if we embrace the brokenness of the world, you need to feast on Jesus. What else will strengthen you? This is the meaning of when Jesus was speaking these words to his disciples, and he said, these are hard words. Do you want to leave? I'm giving you a tough message. This is John chapter 6. 
I'm not speaking easy. The cost of discipleship is not easy. I'm not promising you that you're going to walk, you're going to live as pilgrims, and guess what? Everything's going to be hunky-dory. And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We're pilgrims. Sing the songs of ascent. Trust and seek the presence of God. Emmanuel. God with us. Enough to be real with him. Enough to be broken before him. Knowing that the gospel is Jesus by his spirit inserting his life. Flesh of flesh, bone of bones into yours. Father, I pray that we who have feasted now on your word will feast on your sacrament. Father, I pray that you would give us yourself, and I thank you that you're our strength. We come to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.